Then Yerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped by the side the spring of Harod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. Let me start by telling you another story before we get to this one, because there's a very interesting similarity. You probably know about this. In 480 BC, the Persian army invaded the Greek peninsula. This was the second time they had done this. And at this time, there was no Greek empire. There were independent city-states that, when they were not fighting an outside enemy, were fighting each other. And for that reason, they were seen as vulnerable by some of the vast empires of the world. Well, when the governors got together, they decided the best thing we can do is send out a force to hold back the army as long as we can while we rally together. And a small force was sent out to a place called Thermopylae, led by the famous 300 Spartans and King Leonidas. And if you know the story, maybe you've seen the movie or read the comic book. They held the gap, this small, narrow gap of the road, for three days. These, a couple thousand Greeks, that when it was seen that the, the case was hopeless, they sent most of them home, uh, except for these 300 Spartans and a few others that held the gap with that phalanx formation they were so famous for against an army that might have been as many as a million Persian soldiers. Until one of the fellow Greeks betrayed the Greek army and showed the Persians a way around behind, and they were unable to stand against that. It's a, it's a really inspiring story, especially if you're a young man and you really like football. You love the, the thought of the impossible stand against unbeatable odds, and, and we like to tell that story. When I was in middle school, our mascot was the Spartans, and so my basketball coach used to love to tell us about the 300 Spartans. And those 300 show us and the story tells us what is possible when men put their minds to it and try with all of their might. There's another set of 300 soldiers in the story here tonight. And this group is going to teach us the exact opposite lesson. Whereas King Leonidas and his 300 teach us about possibility, Gideon and his 300 teach us about how to handle impossibility. There's no sugarcoating their chances here. These were not elite warriors trained for battle from birth. In fact, they might have been the least possible qualified soldiers. And this story speaks to us because the story of the Spartans always makes us feel a little inferior. And that's okay. It's kind of supposed to. It's kind of supposed to call you higher and say, if they could do that, what can you do? But very often we look at life and say, okay, that's fine, but I'm not a Spartan. I'm not a Spartan. I'm not one of those people. I'm not one of these legendary warriors. Like Gideon, we're encamped by the spring of Harod. Harod in Hebrew means trembling. How'd you like to have your army camped at a place called the spring of trembling? Everybody's shaking in their boots. Like, yeah, that sounds more like me. That might not be what I want to be, but if I'm going to be honest with myself, that's kind of how I am. What this, this story is going to teach us is not to do better, but to stand back and see the salvation of the Lord. Because as we sang tonight, the battle belongs to God. And Gideon is going to learn exactly that through him and his 300 soldiers tonight. So let's read verse 2 down to verse 8. Familiar story, I'm sure. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many. For me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. 
Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, Harod, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people went home, and 10,000 remained. You got to know there was some lieutenant somewhere saying, What did you do that for? Well, verse 4, the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now there's 300 of them, but at least they've all got their own trumpet. That's good. That's what every, every soldier wants, right? Did I remember my trumpet? <laughs> it's going to become important later, but that always makes me laugh. Well, at least we've all got trumpets. So Gideon has been hesitant all the whole last chapter, and in fact, into this chapter too. Gideon is called by the Lord, but first thing he does is scoff at the call of God. And then he says, well, let me offer a sacrifice and we'll see if you're really from the Lord. And that's what the Lord did. He showed him a sign where he made the offering catch fire. And then he said, all right, go destroy your father's idols. Well, Gideon did, but he waited until dark when nobody could see him. And then when Gideon is ready to rally the troops, he does the fleece thing twice in a row. He says, all right, Lord, uh, first of all, have everything be dry except for the fleece. Uh, that's too easy. How about everything wet except for the fleece? And the Lord did it both times. And as I said last time, you should not take from this that God's cool with that. You're supposed to be going, oh, Gideon, again with this? Testing God again? Now, God is patient with him, as he's often patient with us. But the point is, when God speaks, you should just listen, not keep on testing God over and over again. Well, finally, he's at least got the army together. And he's gathered them back to fight against these Midianites. Remember, they were Midianites? Amalekites and other men from the east that were raiders. They weren't coming so much to conquer the country as much as coming in to take the harvest after the Israelites had already planted it. And they had camels, which was, of course, at this time, a bit of an advantage in warfare. It was mounted cavalry. They could last in the desert for a long time. And Israelite didn't have any of that. So he gathers all the people, but God says, Gideon, we got to talk about the size of your army. And Gideon, yeah, I know, Lord, but this is, only, this is as many as we could get. And not all the tribes are coming. And God goes, ah, no, no, you're misunderstanding. It's too many people. It's too many soldiers, Gideon. And you've got to know Gideon was like, maybe I should do that fleece thing again, because that can't be right. <laughs> too many. Too many. 32,000 soldiers is too many. And so God says, look, here's what we're going to do. Go tell everybody, if you're scared and don't want to fight, go home. You know, if you were conscripted, basically, you're, you're here because you have to be here. I'm letting you go home. And 22,000 men left, which is that's just embarrassing, isn't it? That two-thirds of your army is just going to go home because they're scared? Okay, well, at least we've still got 10,000. That's a lot. That's still like, that's five digits, man. We're still doing good. God goes, yeah, it's still too many. 
Still too many. He goes, yeah, yeah, we got to get rid of these guys. And then they do the, the, the drinking from the brook thing. And different translations render this differently because the Hebrew is, is a little ambiguous as to exactly what God was having Gideon test. The, the ones who lapped like a dog, putting the hands to the mouth, were the ones that God said to keep. And the rest that were kneeling down to drink, seeming like going all the way down to the water. Uh, but it, it's, it's kind of ambiguous. The point is there are two different kinds of people drinking the water differently. And you should not try to pull any kind of spiritual meaning out of that. Like, well, the guys with their hands up, they were ready. They were ready for battle. It's like, I don't think so. And the ones that were down on the, on the ground, you know, they were worshipers of the Lord. I've heard all those taught. It, you can't pull that out of the, the, the text. All you're trying to get from this is God picked the smaller group, the weird ones. Because 9,700 men did it this way, 300 did it that way. God goes, keep them. Keep the 300. He goes, now we're ready for a fight. Now we're ready for a battle. Very often, God will intentionally orchestrate weakness for his people when they're serving his purposes. God will make it hard on purpose. God will find a way to take away the things in which you have confidence before he sends you out to fight. I'll give you an example. 1 Kings 18, when they're having the great showdown of the gods on top of Mount Carmel, and they build up the altars, and whichever god answers by fire, he's the true god. Well, when it comes to Elijah's turn, he said, dig a trench and pour water all over this thing. I want it soaking wet until the trench is full. It's like it's hard enough to get fire from heaven without making it hard for the thing to even catch fire. So why is Elijah doing that? Because God is trying to communicate to the people, difficulty is not a thing when I'm involved. Consider the blind man in John chapter 9. The disciples thought they were theologians. They said, hey, uh, this blind man, born, born blind, was it his fault or his parents' fault that this happened? We still do that, don't we? Maybe we don't say it out loud quite like that, but we can kind of think that. Or the devil can accuse you to think that something happens because of something you did or because something somebody did to you. But the Lord says, no, it was so that the glory of God might be shown in his life. The Lord goes, I allowed this to happen because I want to do this miracle in his life right now and minister to every Christian for the rest of time. He allowed that man to be blind for that long. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about because of the abundant revelations given to me, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. We do not know exactly what that is. He uses the metaphor of a thorn in the flesh. You ever get a thorn stuck somewhere? It's not very pleasant, is it? And Paul says it was a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Meaning Satan is always asking, can I, can I do something to Paul? And God goes, yeah, you can. This, this much and no farther. You're going to be like a burr under his saddle. You're going to be like a rock in his shoe. You're going to be preventing him from ever being 100% comfortable in his life. It seems to be that Paul had a, a, a malady in his eyes based on some of the, the books that we have. So it could have been that. It could have been some kind of malarial sickness that made it difficult for him to see and it could cause the eyes to weep. But we really don't know. All that Paul says is, to keep me humble, God allowed me to suffer. Now we say, God, why are you making it hard on purpose? We've got 32,000 soldiers and, we're, and that's still going to be a tough fight. It's going to say that the camels of these men were like the sand of the seashore. Now you start counting, you're like, oh, what's the point? We've got a lot. We've got 32,000. The Lord goes, it's too many. How about 300? Maybe the Lord knew there was going to be some Greek legend. And God's like, watch me show up 
King Leonidas this way. God will manipulate events so that you have no choice but to trust him. Why does he do this? I'll tell you why. It is because self-reliance is a spiritual disease. If you're going to only rely on yourself for your life, it will eat away at your soul. Now, this is a problem because this is a civic value that we hold as a country. Self-reliance. Don't wait for somebody to do it for you. Get out there in your covered wagon, go to the wilderness and tame it. Rely upon yourself. That's a, that's a civic virtue, and that's good as far as it goes. But when it comes to the things of God, you know good and well that you have limits, and there are times you cannot rely on yourself. Relying on yourself will keep you from the abundant life that God has. Do you know that? Because there are certain things that God will only pass into your life through faith. If you say, I only want the things that I can build, God goes, that might be very impressive, but it's not going to be me-sized. You're not going to do anything miraculous or wonderful that people are going to look at and go, how did he do that? Even amazing things, even great men and women, they write books and give you like the five or six things they did. If you want to do it, here you go. And you can, to some degree or other, uh, replicate that. But God goes, I want to do things in your life that nobody can explain. Nobody can explain. It also will keep you out of heaven if you, if you don't watch it. I trust that I have done enough or can do enough to earn my spot in the heavenly chorus. You can't. And people really don't like it when you say that to them. Have you found that? If you haven't found that, go take a look online and see what people say when you say that they're sinners. It's amazing because you'll have all sorts of philosophies. You got the atheists that are going to talk about how all people are, are full of it and they're no good and everybody thinks they're righteous, but they're all a bunch of hypocrites and I know that. Or you got folks over here, the postmodernists that think everybody has some sort of unconscious bias that kind of keeps them from being righteous. But you come along and say, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And they say, how dare you say something like that? Because what, you, what you're saying, I need God exactly that. And God knows this. He knows that salvation can only come to you through faith and renouncing your own strength. So the Lord will teach you this lesson in life to train you that you can't rely on yourself for everything. It's a worthwhile lesson. So God will manipulate events in your life to bring you to a place where you have no choice but to take a step and hope that that water is going to hold you. That's what God does. That's what God does. Paul, in that passage I was talking about before, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. If I found out that God was allowing a demon to put a thorn in my side, I, I might be a little upset about that. But after Paul had prayed several times for the Lord to remove it, God said to me, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you. You're saved, Paul. That should be enough. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. It was the last time you went to a, to a big Christian conference and somebody came out and told you about all the ways they were weak and how they were, they were insufficient and, and couldn't measure up. I'll boast of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He says, God, you're telling me that weakness makes your strength perfect? Then let's be weak. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, with insults. Anybody here content with insults? Anybody? Nobody? Okay. I'm content with hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, 
then I am strong. In your weakness, God's strength is manifested. And it is amazing to me that after so long, Christians still don't believe this. You talk about a doctrine that is really quickly followed up with, yeah, but it's this one. Yes, 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 yes. God's strength made perfect in our weakness. But that doesn't mean what? That we should charge in a battle with a mere 300 soldiers, Gideon. That's foolhardy. God won't honor your foolishness. God says, really? Because my foolishness is wiser than your wisdom. That's from Isaiah. It says that. And your wisdom doesn't even come close to my foolishness. We've got to learn this. God is trying to prepare your soul for salvation. God said so that the Israelites will not boast against me. And Ephesians 2.9 tells us that we are saved by grace, not of works, lest any man should what? Boast. And boy, legalistic people love to boast. People that think they're saved by their works strut. They'll show you, they'll announce to the whole world all the ways they've got it right. Oh, they'll cloak it in a very humble way. You know, God finally brought me to the realization that I just couldn't be like everybody else. And now that I don't sin anymore, I'm so glad that I'm assured of my salvation. Not like these people over here that, yeah, they might be saved, but they don't know. Not like me. It's like, what is that nonsense? And he's just told a parable about those kinds of people. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. You ever prayed a prayer like that? Be honest. Hope you didn't say it just like that. God, I thank you that you've made me too smart to be a Mormon. God, I thank you that I, I'm just, I'm not deceived by those, that stupid Islam stuff. God, thank you, God, thank you that I live in a place where we're not surrounded by this kind of people or those kind of people. The Lord says, really? That, that, that guy makes me sick. But the one that comes in and he says and beats his breast, says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That man goes home to his house justified. How about that? The Bible says there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than all the righteous that don't need any help. Which is, of course, sarcasm from Jesus because we all need help, don't we? Which is why Jesus will teach us that salvific lesson in the events of our lives. He'll make it hard on purpose. To ready your heart for salvation, for abundant life, God will introduce weakness on purpose, as Gideon learned. Verse 9. Verse 9. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, and I'm guessing Gideon probably was, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down, I guess he was afraid. <laughs> then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. He said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Now, this is the night that God wanted them to go and attack. And it seems when the, the word came, Gideon began to break out into a cold sweat. And God goes, All right, Gideon, if you're still nervous... Why don't you go down and eavesdrop at the campfire and see what they're saying about you? So he did. 
He snuck down to this camp, which is an enormous camp, like locusts, it says. And he eavesdrop, and this guy's telling a dream. And this dream was, was causing the men of the camp to be intimidated. He said, I had a dream. What happened? Then? Well, there was this biscuit. <laughs> this, this barley biscuit. And it came rolling down the hill. And it hit the tent. And the whole tent just collapsed when the biscuit hit it. And we were all trapped inside, and it just ripped it to pieces. And the guy goes, oh, man, I know what it means. What do you think it means? Gideon is the biscuit. <laughs> all right? He's the biscuit that's going to knock down this camp. Oh, we're doomed. God has given that we should have known better than to pick on their God. That's the guy that, that blew up Egypt a few years ago. Remember? Oh, man. And he realizes that the enemy was already afraid. God was already at work in the enemy's camp, preparing Gideon's victory in the background when he didn't realize it. We tend to be like Gideon. We evaluate circumstances by looking at the numbers, 300 versus, well, a lot. Looking at the finances. Look, I can see that this would be a good thing for God's kingdom, but the numbers just don't add up, so we, we just can't do this. Or we look at the circumstances, we look at how, how events are playing themselves out. And we evaluate things that way. And it makes us feel wise. And it makes us feel mature and spiritual. But too often, we fail to take God and his active participation into account. Let me say that. God's active participation. If you have not factored that in to your budget or to your battle plan or whatever it may be, you, you're going to work with the wrong set of numbers. Let me give you an example of this. This is in 2 Kings chapter 6. This is Elisha. And uh, Elisha was getting so many words of knowledge from the Holy Spirit that the king of, I believe it was Syria, gets everybody together in his court and says, All right, who's the leak? Who's the guy sending messages that Israel always knows what we're doing? And said, King, Elisha is a prophet, and God tells him, Everything that you do, even what you do in your bedroom. Read it. That's what it says. And he goes, okay, so we got to take out Elisha. So 2 Kings 6, verses 15 through 17, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army of horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? Elisha said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And the servant said, the old man's finally cracked. So Elisha prayed and said, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. He was looking at the flesh. And there was no hope. But Elisha had the eyes of, the, of faith and spirit. He says, God's got this one. How can you say that? He says, well, if you could see what I could see, or maybe Elisha couldn't see. Maybe he said, Lord, just show him. I trust you at this point. He was discipled by Elijah. He had a double portion of the spirit. And he didn't even get scared when armies surrounded the city asking for his head. The story ends, by the way, God strikes them all with blindness and Elisha leads them into an ambush. It's pretty funny because then they let them all go. That's like the ultimate insult. It's like, at least we could have died like men. But no, he just said, hey, y'all go on home now. Where's Elisha? Yeah, uh, about that. 
We should pick on another country, King. What do we learn from this? God is not passive. He is not silent. He has not spun the top of the universe and he's just waiting until it starts to fall and then that's the rapture when he finally catches it. God intervenes in history. He intervenes in your life. And God is working to prepare the way of victory in your life when you're not paying attention. God, all Gideon hears is, go take the camp. Little does he know that God's been sending biscuit dreams to all the soldiers so that they're scared to death. God does this in your life. Do you think that coincidences are just coincidences? Haven't you seen that there's been a time in your life where God brings the right person in at just the right moment? Or you got to make a big decision, and so you kind of finally take a deep breath and go to your wife to tell her about it, and she goes, you know, I've been thinking the exact same thing. And y'all were thinking right along the same lines, you didn't even realize it. Maybe you've got, a, you got something God's asking you to do, but you think, my boss will never go for that. He'll never give me the time off. He'll never let me do this and that. And then finally you go in and, and you ask, how am I lose my job today, honey? And he goes, okay, yeah, no problem. Go, what? What? Ebenezer Scrooge is giving me time off, man? Or that events just, just come up right like they're supposed to? Well, we need this, Lord. That can only happen if these eight dominoes fall down. Wow, that was lucky. I guess we didn't need to pray after all. Isn't that what we always do, man? Oh, why do we do that? I do that too. It's like, oh, never mind, Lord. He goes, never mind. <laughs> I just answered your prayer. Or when laws get passed or civic decisions are made at just the right time, even when you sit up and you go, wow, I never would have expected that. The Lord is already working these things out. And to live as if this is true is called faith. It's not just blind trust in the unknown that I believe it's going to happen. This is, you know, my, I used to tease my sister about this all the time and she'd get real grumpy about it, but she would be watching, you know, the Disney channel or whatever teeny bopper show she was watching. And there was always like those really bland, like inspirational moments. Like, and there's one where like, we got to keep the faith. And I'm like, keep the faith in what? She goes, shut up, Tyler. I'm just watching TV. <laughs> Like, keep the faith in what? That's just, it sounds nice, but what does it mean? Well, I just believe things are going to work out. You have no reason to think that. Why do you think things will work out? Terrible things happen every day. If you don't have faith in the Lord, there's no reason to think that. This is why people want to keep the benefits of Christianity, like hope, but abandon Romans 8.28. It says that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's belief in God, that he's actively working. When God tells you to do something that makes no sense, or you read something that seems to make no sense, or you really feel like this is what we need right now, and it doesn't quite make sense, trust that God is already in the background giving biscuit dreams to people. Gideon got a glimpse behind the curtain here. He got to see it. You will not always be that blessed. You're not always, and probably most of the time won't, get a chance to look behind the curtain. But you've got to learn to trust that when God says go, it's because he's already made the arrangements. Amen. Let's keep going. Let's see what happens. Verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets in the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. 
Now it seems that Gideon has finally got the message. Finally got the message. He worships and he returns to the Lord with great faith. Can I just remind us very quickly? Worship is the proper response to when God intervenes in your life. Don't just blow past things. Don't just blow past good things that happen or positive things. I remember this side, uh, not this year, but previous year at the Positive Choices Fundraiser Gala, Roe versus Wade had been overturned, and that was our first fundraiser as a pregnancy center since that. And I, I spent like a good five minutes of my message trying to get people to smile. <laughs> it's like, guys, we've been waiting for this for 50 years, and it finally happened. How about a thank you, Lord? And everyone's <laughs> staring at me all serious. Don't you realize this is a very serious thing, young man? It's like, yeah, but how ungrateful are we not to take the time and rejoice when God actually does what we've asked him to do? So let's just move on. Just remember that. But his battle plan is a little silly. So we've, what do we have? We have trumpets. We have torches and jars. Perfect. All right. So we're going to conceal the trumpets with a jar or conceal the, the torches with jars and uh, I'll have my trumpet, and we'll split up and surround them, and we'll blow trumpets, and we'll smash the jars, and we'll go, and, and they'll, they'll think there's a lot. It's like, a, it's like Peter Pan. It's like <laughs> the Lost Boys trying something here. It reminds us of Joshua's plan in Joshua chapter 6. We'll march around the city. And then what? That's it. That's all we're going to do. <laughs> but on the last day, we'll walk around seven times. And then we're all going to shout really loud. And then what? And then the walls will come a-tumbling down. It's foolhardy. Unless you remember that God is involved here. That's going to be about as effective as rolling a biscuit down the hill at the enemy camp. Interesting you should say that. Let me tell you what God just revealed to me. You know what true faith does? True faith goes beyond just believing that God wants to help you. True faith begins to make plans that will only work if God helps. That's faith. This plan will never work unless God steps in and helps us. So many well-meaning Christians, they want to make plans that are great and exciting, but still have a pretty good chance of success. It's like, when's the last time you tried a 300 versus a horde of locusts level plan? Ah, oh, that just doesn't seem, uh, that doesn't seem wise. Why not? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You're just going to roll biscuits down the hill, Gideon? That's right. That's exactly what we're doing. True faith begins to make plans around God's help. Let me tell you a story about a man named Jehoshaphat. He was not just a, a fun prospector curse word. Jehoshaphat. He was a real guy. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, they get a word that Edom has been in, is going to invade the land of Judah. And they come before the Lord and they're praying and they're seeking God. Good thing to do in a crisis, by the way. Don't act until you've sought the Lord. And a prophet speaks the word. God just told me that we're not even going to have to fight in this battle. That God's going to drive them out. We're just going to show up and get rich. And Jehoshaphat said, that's a good plan. But let's still make sure we've got a good battle plan in place just in case. That's not what he did. In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 21, when he had taken counsel with the people, Jehoshaphat appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Well, we don't got to fight. Let's put the band out front. 
Now, lots of militaries have bands, but usually you don't march forward on like the fields of Verdun with like a tuba in your hands. That's just, just that's dangerous. You can't do that. But he goes, well, God already said we're not going to have to fight. So let's put the priests out there with the trumpets and they'll give us a lively tune to march to. And when they showed up, the enemy was gone and they had left all their stuff. And it said it took him three days to collect all the spoil. Jehoshaphat knew God was going to intervene. So he altered his plan in faith. If God's going to do it without us having to fight, then let's not get in battle formation. Let's act as if God was telling the truth. Now, we love that. And it gets us all riled up. And we're like, yes, let's do something for Jesus now, man. That's good. You should feel that way in the congregation. But once you walk through that door, how many of y'all know this? You'll feel that way and you'll be all revved up and ready to go. And this is what we're going to do in Jesus' name. But then you get in that car ride home and those doubts start to creep up. Or maybe somebody else's doubts start to creep up. I have found that sometimes it is less than profitable to tell people what God has told you to do. Hopefully they're going to be there and celebrate with you, but sometimes they can be an unwitting instrument of Satan trying to cast doubt into your life. There is, of course, a place for wisdom. Of course. This is why the Bible tells us to test all things. When God speaks, take the time. Don't rush. Take the time to make sure God is speaking. This is why a pastor's job is to primarily minister in the word and pray. Because it's good for me to lead the ministry here. But if I'm not hearing from the Lord, I'm going to make decisions like a business executive. And that's not my job. My job is to lead the people spiritually. So, well, wisdom, wisdom. We've got we to have wisdom. And this is why a lot of God's plans get, what, what's the word? What would you say? They get planned out of faith. God told us just to go for it. Okay, good. But let's make sure that all of our bases are covered first. Let's make sure there is zero risk in this plan moving forward. Oh, is that what God likes? Is that what God? Uh, yeah, Peter, you can walk on the water, but first uh, get some water skis and a life vest and a scuba gear and uh, a parachute just in case. Is that what the Lord said? Well, that's just wise if you're going to step out in the water, but the Lord is there. The Lord is there. This is why God uses crazy people to do great things. And sometimes in the church we sit back and go, <laughs> at least I'm not weird like that guy. You know why God uses weird people? Because weird people already don't care what you think. They don't care if they look stupid. They don't even care if they fail a few times. And God goes, at least he's got faith. God will even overlook sometimes moral failure and doctrinal instability in favor of faith. Because God goes, I can sanctify you and I can teach you. But faith is really hard to build up in somebody that thinks they've got their act together. If the word tells you to do something, do it. If the Bible says, give to the Lord the first fruits of your increase, you need to do it. By the way, if you don't tithe when you're broke, you will never tithe when you're rich. I've learned that. I'm telling my kids that. Mike goes, but I don't have a lot of money. I only get $5. I'm like, yeah, I know. But if you don't do it with five, you won't do it with 100000 in five. Well, this is, uh, this is uh, not a very good financial investment. What did God say? If God tells you to forgive somebody, no person on earth would ever think that I'm obligated to forgive them. Well, that might be. But guess what? You don't have to answer to some person on earth. You have to answer to the one who died on the cross for you and forgave you. Explain that to your bleeding Lord on the cross. If the Lord tells you to pray, I don't really see the purpose of prayer. Well, who asked you? You don't see the purpose of prayer. That's the problem. 
I just, I've never seen it work for me. You know who, who says that prayer doesn't work? People who don't pray. Because the people who do pray won't shut up about it. Haven't you found that to be true? If you spend time praying and somebody says, prayers don't get answered, you're like, what are you talking about? Well, I, there's always, I, I love hearing this because it's just so ridiculous. Like, well, there was an empirical study done at this whatever stupid university that they prayed for good grades and some of them didn't pray and there was no difference. It's like, wow, okay. That's really going to debunk everything that the Lord has done over all these thousands of years. We run that experiment every day, every single day. Well, tell me one miracle. I'm like, I can give you five that I've seen this year. God answers prayer. If a prophetic word comes to you, you should act on it. Now, 1 John, test all things. But it's not, test is not, okay, I'll remember that and then do whatever I want. Test is go home and say, God, was that you speaking through that person to me? I don't believe God speaks through people. I believe he only speaks through his word. Well, his word tells us that the Lord gives prophetic gifts to more people in the new covenant than he ever did in the old covenant. And you should listen. Because sometimes you can read the Bible and you just skip over things. Or you hear the same preacher say the same things over and over and it just kind of becomes dead air. And so God sends somebody to speak directly to you. Act on that if God speaks to you. If you're in a situation where it's, there's no hope unless God steps out, Take a step of faith. You know, very often we get into bad situations and we just kind of curl up. And that's the worst thing you can do in any situation. Get up and go forward. Just think, what would be the coolest thing God could do in this situation? I guess he could do that. But that's incredibly unlikely. Well, the most likely thing is that your life falls to pieces. And we know that's not what God wants for you. Take a step of faith. Sometimes we demonstrate a lack of faith and we call it obedience. I don't do crazy things in Jesus' name like those weird people over there. I just, I live my life according to a set of divinely revealed principles and that's that. Well, good for you. But the Bible is crammed full of stories. All the examples God gives us are of people that heard the voice of the Lord and stepped out and did amazing things. Let's be people who are going to live as if God is real. To actually live and plan and think and make decisions as if God was real. As if his word was true. As if his help was assured, because it is. Verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, probably between 10 and 12 p.m. here, coming up on midnight. When they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands, then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And you might say, what about their weapons? They didn't have any, it seems. Or if they did, they kept them sheathed in favor of the trumpet and the tor torches. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerirah, as far as the border of Abel Meholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. So I can't get over It's like a Boy Scout troop here. Like they sneak up around them with jars and trumpets. Then they, they lit the torches, they smash the jars, they blow the trumpets, and they shout really loud. And the Midianites panic. The biscuits are coming. And they started attacking each other in the dark. 
They started fighting against one another because they couldn't see anything. And the 300 torches and the loud trumpets made it seem like there was a lot more people there. But it really wasn't the deception. It was because God had produced confusion in their ranks. And they harried them all the way to the borders of Israel in retreat. And all the other nations that had gone away afraid started to join the fight. Victory comes in life when we combine our faith with God's power. If God is already at work, the rest is up to us. I know some people don't like saying that. God is sovereign. God does everything. Yeah, God sovereignly prepares the army with biscuit dreams and says, now go fight. What's left? For you to go fight. You've got to step up. Now you might say, wait a minute. Now Gideon had a special revelation from God. I don't have that. How am I supposed to know? Friend, you do have that. Jesus said in John 14 that everyone who believes on him will do the same works he did and even greater works. Why? Because he was sending the Holy Spirit and he was opening up the channels of prayer that had never been opened before. That you are to minister and live and pray like Jesus did. Jesus did not ascend to heaven and say, now hold on as tightly as you can until I get back. He says, the gates of hell will not stand against my church. You'll do even greater things than I did. That's blasphemous. No, that's the Holy Ghost. Jesus ministered for three years. The Lord's like, y'all going to have at least 2,000 years of millions of people filled with the same Holy Spirit. It's going to be amazing. Ephesians 3, verses 20 through 21, Paul gives a, a doxology here. He says, now to him, he's going to describe God. How does Paul describe God? Who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think Hold on, let's pause there before we finish. God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, are you getting the picture? Super more than you could ever ask. So what's the wildest thing you've ever prayed for? Don't answer out loud, just think about it. What's the wildest thing you ever prayed for? God is not limited by that. God goes, oh, come on, stop thinking so small. Or think the things that you've thought of God doing that you can't even bring yourself to ask for, God's able to do all more than that. Well, how does he do that? Finish the verse. According to the power at work within us. He's not talking about lightning bolts from heaven. He's not talking about earthquakes that come out of nowhere. He's talking about the Holy Ghost power at work within you is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than you could ever ask or think. Which is why he says, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. So there's not just a first century church thing. All generations, forever and ever. Amen. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. I saw some guys, like, what's Gideon doing sticking his name in there? Well, first of all, that's what the biscuit dream had said, that the Lord was going to use Gideon. But also, the Lord does not mind exalting those that humble themselves before him. In the New Testament, when Paul was going out taking the gospel, it was a sword for the Lord and for Paul. Does that minimize God to talk about Paul? No, of course not. Paul was God's instrument. During the time of the, the pagan emperors and the heretic emperors, a sword for the Lord and Athanasius. You all know I love talking about Athanasius. I'll try to restrain myself tonight. But we look at that story and we go, oh, God did that. Yes, he did, but who did he use? Athanasius contramundum himself. How about during the Reformation? A sword for the Lord and for Luther. Luther doesn't get the glory, God does. Yeah, but God has certainly seen to it that his instrument has been exalted throughout the ages, hasn't he? 
But during the second great awakening, a sword for the Lord and for Finney. It's, it's estimated that millions of people made professions of faith during that time. It changed the culture. It gave rise to the abolition movement, or in fact, it gave greater impetus to the abolition movement. A sword for the Lord and for Finney. What about you? Oh, God doesn't want to use me like that. Yes, he does. You, what makes you so special that God can't use you? Well, I did some rotten things. What about Paul, guys? What did Paul do? That, that persecutor of the church. You've got to believe that God can and, in fact, wants to use you. Families can be restored. Whether that's your marriage falling to pieces, whether that's your kids going wayward, whether it's your parents going wayward, the Lord is able to restore things and He wants to use you to do it. Nations can be revived. I'm sick and tired of Christians saying, well, this is just the last, this is, I guess, the last hurrah and judgment's going to come and we might as well just wait for the rapture. Who gave you permission to say that? The Lord said, occupy until I come. And I, I'm, I'm afraid to say it, but I have to say it. It is usually those that are older saints in the church that cannot see past their lifetime. Meanwhile, I'm coming here, and not just me, but several other those in my age group that were like, we're not done. So we got to play defense. That's fine. I like playing defense. You get to get rough and watch the Lord do some incredible things. Habits can be beaten. I guess that's just the way I am. I'm going to be a drinker the rest of my days. Oh, really? Is that what God does? God just says, I'm going to clean you up and save you, but I'm going to leave this one sin in your life just because I don't like you very much. Is that what the Lord does? Paul says, stop presenting your members as slaves of unrighteousness. He's like, stop showing up like the, that sin is your master. Oh, what do you want me to do today? He says, no, show up as a, as a vessel of righteousness. Tell your sin to take a hike. We can't do that. We're always going to be sinners. Man, what a terrible attitude. Paul says, it is no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells in me. He says, I live a crucified life. Churches can be built and rebuilt. It's a, it's a shame what we're seeing happening to the Methodist church. You think God can't fix that? God was able to fix it when Jezebel was queen. In one day, he was able to turn it around. Our little church here, what we're doing, you don't think God is able to raise us up to have even international and for centuries-long influence in his kingdom? He can do that. But we get all quiet, all of a sudden it applies to us. We're like, oh, I don't know about that. No, yes, he can. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Believe the Lord, trust his providence, step out in faith. We're such doubters. We look at things through carnal eyes and say, there's no way this biscuit can knock that tent down. Okay, that might be right. But what if God makes it like a super turbocharged biscuit that like knocks them all down and sets it all on fire? Well, that seems unlikely. It doesn't matter if God's in it. What likely? If God says, I am the Lord. Is there anything too hard for me? Don't you love that verse? I'm going to say it again. I am the Lord. Is anything too hard for me? I don't think God can. God, God just won't. God wouldn't want to do that. Really? Is that the kind of God you serve? The one who gave you his son on the cross? Who lifted you up out of the pit and forgave you in the middle of all you mess? You think because there's a bigger mess somewhere else, he can't clean that one up too? There's a story in 2 Kings 7. It's another Elisha story. Where they were surrounded. They were besieged. There was no food left. People were starting to eat each other. And they, they go to Elisha and they say, Elisha, We've just about had it with you because you keep telling us to have faith and I think I've just about had enough faith. I'm going to kill you. He says, don't worry. This time tomorrow, plenty of food for everybody. 
And the, all the men were scoffing at that. But then it takes us outside, and there's a bunch of lepers who are not allowed inside the, the city. Oh, that's such a poor thing. Not, no, you do not want leprosy inside the city when it's besieged, right? So they're outside the gate. And they say, you know, fellas, we're about to starve to death. If we go inside, they're going to stone us because we're lepers, and they, you can't have leprosy in the city. It would be a, you know, a terrible, terrible plague. If we go over there, they might kill us. Or they might feed us and have pity on us. So we die if we stay here. We die if we go in there. We might die if we go over there. Let, let's just go see. Let's just go try. They go over there. In the middle of the night, God had sent a panic among the people. They had abandoned all their stuff. There was nobody surrounding the camp anymore. And all this, the lepers started to take all this gold and stuff and bury it somewhere so that they could have it. And they go, you know what? This probably isn't right. We should go let everybody know that the battle's already been won. They were sitting there trapped inside their city while the enemy was already gone. And that's how some of us act. We look at the fact that there's tents surrounding the city, but we never think to say, why are we just going to wait here until we die? If we stay, the outcome is certain. If we go, it's uncertain, but it might be miraculous. And I serve a miracle working God, so let's go. If I can convince one desperate person that God's infinite power is available to help them and that their faith will be the key that unlocks that victory, my life would be well lived. Why do pastors spend so much time trying to convince you of things like this? Because all of our power as Christians comes through faith. You have to believe. If you don't believe, you're not going to see these things. People would come to Jesus and say, Lord, if you, if you were willing, I can be clean. Lord, will you open my eyes? Lord, will you heal my leprosy? And he would say, according to your faith, be it unto you. Some of us go, oh, Lord, please don't say that to me. Please don't say that because my faith is about this big. Good news is you don't need that much faith. Mustard seed faith. But some of us don't even have that, which is why I'm here trying to teach you. Guys, God is already at work. Step out like he's already at work and you'll see his power. Will you commit to that today? Will you start to take, make plans and take steps as if God wanted to help you? Wouldn't, wouldn't you hate it to find out that your kids are afraid to ask you for anything because they think that you're going to deny them? Like for things that they need, like if they're in trouble, I can't go to my dad. If I go to my dad, he's just going to get angry. And I, I think he kind of wants me miserable. I'd be heartbroken if I found that, found that out. I kind of, you know, you have to teach your kids and discipline them. But I love that my, my little boy, Samuel, when he gets in trouble, sometimes it takes a minute to realize he's in trouble. I'm like, what are you doing under there? I go, I don't know. I'm like, no, 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 we're not doing that right now. And then he kind of realizes, oh, wait a minute. This is not going to go well for me. <laughs> but I like the fact that his immediate predisposition is dad likes me. Dad loves me. Dad, dad's happy with me. Dad wants to play. He would probably love to color on the walls next to me. He would probably love to be dumping out garbage in the middle of the new house with me. He loved that. Now he's got to learn, but that's his attitude. And we should have a similar attitude towards our Lord. Paul said in Romans 8, if God has already given us his son, won't he with his son give us everything else? Verse 24 and 25. Let's finish up this chapter now. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan, and they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zaeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zaeb they killed at the winepress of Zaeb. I'm guessing they named it after them. 
Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeeb to Gideon across the Jordan. So Gideon calls on the, the tribe of Ephraim, which was the largest and strongest tribe at this time, to hold the fords. They're running away. Don't let them cross the river. And this is actually going to uh, have a some negative repercussions for Gideon in the next chapter, but for right now, we're just going to see the happy ending. They capture these two princes, Oreb and Zeeb. Oreb means raven in Hebrew, and Zeeb means wolf. So I don't know if this was their actual names or if they were nicknames, like the raven and the wolf were the names they had for these guys. But they brought their heads back. Victory at last. The enemies have been defeated. The story of Leonidas and the 300 Spartans is an inspiring one. You know, it kind of makes your heart swell a little bit and stand up a little straighter. And I, I could have been there. I could have done that, you know. And it teaches us an important lesson. I don't want to take away from that. But let's never forget something. Sparta lost. They were dead to the last man. And oh, it's a beautiful charge of the light brigade moment. And oh, they, they, they took a stand. And yeah, they did. But the Bible says no greater love is a man for his friend than to lay down his life for him, right? But they lost. The most impressive soldiers in the whole world lost. The numbers got to them. Eventually, the carnal way of calculating things played out. Gideon's 300, on the other hand, were entirely unimpressive. They weren't afraid, but they drank weird. Whatever it was about them, they drank weird. 300. But that little barley loaf crushed the innumerable tents of Midian. And they didn't even hardly have to fight anybody. God just took care of it. What's the difference? God intervened. And that is what is available to us by faith in Christ is God's intervention. You may not be a Spartan. You may just be a little biscuit like me. But you and God together are a majority. In fact, God alone is a majority. But he wants you on his team because he loves you and he likes you. The lesson for us today is start evaluating your life's situations as if God was real. To trust that he's already at work in the background. And to take steps of faith that might seem crazy to some, but are the only logical conclusion if the Lord is involved. Stop saying things like, well, yes, we believe in God, but when it comes to matters of business or matters of public policy or matters of whatever, we need to just use our heads and, and you know, kind of ask God for help and then do whatever we would do anyway. That's a lesser kind of faith. We don't want to be those that have a form of godliness but deny its power. Paul said there would be people in the last days that look pretty good, but they deny the intervening power of God. There is more to this world than what you can see with your eyes. Open up the eyes of your heart and behold the mighty hand of the Lord.